Welcome to Design Your Life with Sandy. I am your host, Sandy Yang. I am a brain rewiring certified coach and human design expert. In this podcast, we talk about becoming the most kick-ass, unstoppable version of yourself, building a life of alignment and flow that you deserve, and taking a holistic approach to health and wellness. Don't forget to connect with me on Instagram at sandyyang.hd. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the podcast. I have a question for you. What are you addicted to? I am addicted to chocolate, Netflix, cheese, and social media. I'm also addicted to progress, productivity, and exercise. So as you can tell, you can be addicted to great things. And you can be addicted to some unfavorable things such as alcohol and cocaine. And it's not like alcohol is inherently bad. It's like something that brings you pleasure. But when you overdo it to the point that is affecting other people and your overall quality of life, that is when things become a little problematic and you might want to do something about that. So I was noticing that I um, was watching a lot of Netflix because I was kind of stressed. I was watching shows that I didn't even like, but I couldn't stop. You guys know that feeling? And when it's finally done, you feel so coked out that you just like can't even comprehend what happened. So actually dopamine is like this big thing when we talk about addictions. It's also like this wonderful thing that makes us like find pleasure in life, enjoy life, find motivation is actually like a huge thing in terms of um, quality of life. So I invited my friend Sydney to join me in this episode. She is a therapist. She has had extensive experiences working with addiction, whether that is substance abuse or eating disorders. We also share about our own experiences in this topic just a reminder that neither of us is a doctor or psychiatrist we are sharing for the sake of sharing educating and entertaining so with that said i'll let you sit back and enjoy the episode how are you thanks for coming over hi sandy i'm i'm good i'm excited to be back on your podcast and yeah being in your energy Okay, that's really sweet. Um, I'm also like super happy to be recording in person yeah. at my new apartment, which is like very empty. Um, I feel like it echoes, but anyways. It's super nice. It's got really good energy. Feels good to be here. Thanks. So um, as you know, well, both of us did like a little fasting over this past weekend. Mm-hmm. Um The reason why I started it was because I was kind of hearing about dopamine and um, addiction and that kind of stuff for like a while and I just wanted to get deeper into that topic. Um, I did the fast because I wanted to kind of like reset my dopamine a little bit. I also did a social media detox or break Mm -hmm. as I was fasting. Um, So I actually feel very peaceful and calm during the process. And today I went back to food and social media and I just, I feel like I'm more intentional with those things. Um, 
So I wanted to get you on the podcast because I want to talk more about addiction and dopamine and like, you know, whatever else that you know comes along those things.、Um, so can you remind the audience who you are and what you do? Yeah, and I I love that that spark to your fast because I think it's it's fasting is such a great way to. Like reset and to get back in touch with like your internal cues and, um, and look at like what the habits are that you have, especially around food. Um, so I think that's really cool. Um, and yeah, so my name is Sydney Tafiri. Um, I've been on the podcast before,、uh, which was so much fun. And I am a mental health therapist. I am an energy healer. I'm a psychic medium. I'm a yoga teacher. Super I do, talented. I do different things.、Um, and、uh, we talked about last time that I'm a karaoke singer. I love to sing karaoke, so that's kind of a fun fact. And yeah, I'm happy to be here with you. Yay!、Um, so lately, I have been kind of just, you know, how when you move to a new environment, you kind of like. Cleanse your closet and think about what you want to keep, what you don't want to keep, and decluttering has always been like a big thing for me. I like、mm. my, I like to lean into minimalism, but sometimes I still end up with more than I need, and that makes me feel icky. And、um, so, like, actually moving to a new place is really good for building new habits. You know, setting up your environment for success, and a lot of bad habits, actually, bad like unfavorable, less than optimal ha- habits, come from the seeking of instant gratification, right?、Yeah. Um, like being addicted or having like a thing for sugar that's really common is actually because like your brain craves that dopamine response, so we can. You know, become a victim, or we can use that in our favor to build healthy habits.、Um, so, when we talk about dopamine, I always think about like rats、um, and sugar and cocaine、um, and like addiction. So, can you tell us what addiction is, and how do you know if you're addicted to something? Yeah.、Um... I will caveat this with I'm not the expert and the be all end all, but I'll share what I know from my practice and experience working with addictions. But my understanding of addiction is when we become dependent on something, whether it's a person, a substance, a behavior. We become dependent on it, and we need that thing to feel better, quote unquote, to feel normal, quote unquote.、Um, and along with that, there's a brain response. So it's like there's a brain dependence on something, and you were talking about dopamine and wanting that dopamine, and there's also like a behavioral. Habitual part of addiction. Again, this isn't like the be all end all explanation, but this is like how I conceptualize it in my mind. And based on you know the the 
diagnosis, for example, of like alcohol addiction, it's this dependence and it affects your functioning. So, you know, with alcohol, for example, people, maybe someone starts using it because they are coping with something that they don't know how to cope with and they start drinking and then they become dependent on it. And so then their brain needs that to feel quote normal. Their tolerance goes up. I can kind of go on and on, but it's like this pattern that happens where you, where you need the thing or you kind of just automatically do the thing. Does that make sense? Yeah, I actually um, learned on a podcast, like specifically with alcohol, probably with other substances too. You feel happy drinking and feeling tipsy because there's like this rapid release of brain chemicals like GABA and like serotonin and dopamine. And when you wake up the next day, you actually have like a less than... Um, normal level of those that's why it feels not great and you are tempted to drink more just to you know feel a little bit normalized like it's like a homeostasis kind of thing yeah. it's kind of like a pendulum or a seesaw you know how people talk about the law of cause and effect like for every action there's a opposite and equal reaction so if you like tip on the um happy end you kind of have to like tip on the the not great the other end, end to almost like balance out. Yeah, exactly. And like what you're describing is what a lot of people with addictions struggle with. And that is the substance or the behavior, whatever the addiction is, brings someone like to a certain level and then they like being at whatever level that is that this substance gives them. So they do it more, which then increases their, it like, what I'm trying to say is it desensitizes the person and that's what builds tolerance. So like they need more of the thing to achieve the state they want to be at. Yeah, yeah. Because they've basically dampened their response to the thing. Mm. And so what you were describing about kind of swinging the other direction is the brain has to like come back to homeostasis. So this is why like, for example, meth addiction is hands down like the hardest to treat because meth brings people to such a high level of like euphoria that when they come down from it they it's deep deep depression um because like you said you swing the other direction and so then they're like oh well I need more meth mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then it just continues yeah so it's kind of like a feedback loop it, it, that just feeds itself um, so that's obviously terrible, but you know how Anthony Bourdain was addicted to heroin and then he became addicted to 
jujitsu. Mm. So um, it's like you can become addicted to healthy things too. And obviously, sometimes it can be taken too far, but um, it can work both ways. Is there like a social component to addictive behavior? Absolutely. Yeah. So one of like the biggest things in treatment for addictions is like looking at people's social environments, like who's in their life, who is basically enabling them to keep using, who are they buying, you know, their drugs from or, you know, whatever the circumstance might be. And really looking at that and being like, okay, well, you, you need to take this person out of your life. Um, you need to not, you know, go to this group setting anymore because it's triggering for you. And that's why, you know, taking inventory of like, and taking a holistic perspective of someone's life when treating addictions is so important, as is with anything. Um, I personally believe in the holistic perspective, as I know that you do. But the social component's huge because a lot of people, you know, use their substance or engage in their addictive behavior in places with certain people or with specific people can be triggers and yeah so does that kind of answer yeah it does make sense um that actually got me thinking so we can be like addicted to certain things without it being trouble you know troubling right yeah like I can maybe be finding myself eating ice cream seven days in a row and I'm like okay that I, I, I should probably stop um and like the first day of not eating ice cream it feels like huh something is missing mm-hmm. um you will almost feel a little worse before you feel better um Absolutely. coming off of something whether that's meth or ice cream it's so true and it's like getting over the initial hump of like this fucking sucks And that's why recovery is so hard for people. And, you know, it's taking something away that, you know, they've been dependent on, that they've used as what I sometimes like to use the analogy of like a lifeboat, right? It's like they're like hanging on to this thing. Um, And that's not true in all cases, right? Like we can become addicted to things not because we're like, you know, not able to cope. Um, But it's taking that thing away and getting over the initial like suck basically of I don't have this thing to like use when I'm feeling sad, for example. Um, And there's the like physical detox component, which we're kind of hitting on of your body, like kind of freaking out. Like, wait, we were drinking every day. What happened? You know, Mm -hmm. and granted I will caveat this with like, Alcohol is actually the most lethal to withdraw from um, because it can cause all kinds of things like seizures and other things. So like if you're listening and you have an alcohol problem, like please, or any problem, but especially alcohol, please like go to like a medical treatment center. I just wanted to put that caveat out there. Because I don't want anyone, like, listening and just, like, rem- like if they're, like, severely addicted. Yeah. Is what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, anyways. um, 
yeah, so your body's like, oh my God, like, I don't have a thing anymore. And that's why, that's why people relapse because it, 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 it's so severe sometimes. When you say relapse, does that mean they have come off it and they get back on Mm -hmm. the addiction again? Or they, yes, and, or maybe they like slip up and they, you know, use or, or engage in a behavior. Um, and I say that because like behaviors can also be addiction. So like I was telling Sandy, you know, before like eating disorders are addictions. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think that it's necessarily talked about in that way. Yeah. So talk about it if you are cool with it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, what do you want to know about eating disorder addictions? (laughs) So how does that work on a biochemical level? Because with alcohol, meth, cocaine, sugar, we know there is a dopamine response. And I think most people understand that. But do you get dopamine? Do you get high of like not eating? Well, um, I can speak from personal experience Mm -hmm. with an eating disorder. I can't speak for everyone yeah. who's had one. Um, I can also speak a little bit to like the biological kind of perspective on the addiction. Mm-hmm. So with your question about like the dopamine and can you get like high, so to speak, off of like not eating. Well, yeah, because, and again, speaking from my own experience, and I, I just want to say, like, trigger warning for anyone who might be struggling with an eating disorder. Skip ahead a little bit if, like, it's upsetting you. Um, I think people can handle it. Yeah. Yeah. I just felt, like, responsible mm-hmm. and needed to say that. But with, you know, maybe anorexia or orthorexia, for example, looking back, I had a bit, a bit of both, really. But there was this sort of, like, pride in, mm-hmm. like, oh, I've eaten super little today, or... I think the orthorexia a lot of people in wellness can identify with and is, like, a newer form of eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and there's, like, these, like, feelings, like, kind of, um, yeah, it's, like, righteousness or pride or something where you're, like, yeah, I didn't eat today or, you know everyone else is eating and I'm not like, and it just like, there's this, I think, and I'm not judging anyone else, but for me, I call it sort of this like sick sense of like, this feels so good that I just like didn't eat. Like, it's like this, like, do you feel like you were a better human than other people who might be eating like gluten and fried food. I didn't feel like I was better. I okay. just felt like it was sort of like a feeling of accomplishment that like like you had so much discipline. Yeah. It's like a control thing. I felt really comfortable um over this past weekend going into a longer fast. Just like knowing, okay, my body can't handle it. Just like knowing what I know with health and wellness. And it was, I've tried to do extended fast before, but it wasn't coming from a grounded place. Yeah. Yeah. I totally resonate with that. So it's like a slippery slope. It is. And I think what you're hitting on right now, which is so important, especially with like 
we're spot we're speaking about addiction is like intention and like what what is you know your intention behind like using something or engaging in something and you know for me when i had my eating disorder control was a big a big intention you know not really conscious at the time but um, I was a high schooler whose family was falling apart essentially and um, I wasn't nourishing myself properly and yeah I needed some kind of control in that period of my life and yeah you know the, the intention behind it it's it's actually really interesting how my eating disorder started. I I read a book um, about how to eat healthy, and I'm not gonna say what the book is because I don't want anyone to go and like. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, I started reading this book, and I was like, "Oh, great! I'm gonna be healthier. Like, I'm gonna cut this out and that out and whatever." And then it just went down, and like you said, a slippery slope of I cut out a lot of different foods and I was dancing like hours every day at my, you know, high school for the arts. Um, and, and it just became an eating disorder, uh, orthorexia. When you were, um, dancing, was there also like pressure coming from your team or did people say like, Hey, you lost weight. You look really good. No, no, it was quite the opposite. Um, no one really said anything to me until like our performance at the end of the year when yeah. like, well, I did have like a peer say like, oh, like she's so small, like so tiny, but like it wasn't in like a praise kind of way. It was like kind of concern mm -hmm. and my parents were definitely concerned and I just did not look healthy and, um, you know, my mom, I remember a statement she made, like, you know, that I would die if I didn't get help. And mm -hmm. I didn't realize the magnitude of, like, what I was doing to my body. Um, and even then, when she said that, I still, and that's part of the, I think, with eating disorders is, even though you know what the detrimental effects are, like you still keep doing it. And then there's another piece to the addiction definition. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, something is like literally hurting you, but you keep doing it because you, you, you think you need it. And like your body thinks you need it or like your mind thinks you need it to be able to survive. But there's a part of you that knows like, I don't need it. I actually need to stop. Yeah. And, and, you know, I talk about that with my clients who've had eating disorders and I've experienced it myself where like, there are these two parts. There's like the part that's, I'm getting like so many chills. Do you see this? My hair is like standing up on my arms. This is so great. <laughs> There's this part of you that is you and like your soul is what I call it. Like the logical, rational part of you that's like, this is hurting me, I need to stop. Then there's like this other part of you 
which is like the eating disorder self, which I have my clients name that person. Like, what do you want to name this entity? And they come up with all kinds of names. Like, you know, this is potato. Like my eating disorder's name is potato. And the eating disorder self like wants to sabotage and be like, no, like you're going to keep counting calories. You're going to keep, you know, doing all these behaviors. Like we can't stop. And so it's like the battle between like, the rational, like, true you and, like, the eating disorder you. So it's kind of like your higher self versus your ego self. Basically. And actually, there's an amazing book um, called Life Without Ed that was written by a woman who had an eating disorder, and she describes these two parts, like, really well, if anyone, you know, wants to read more. Um, But I lost my train of thought. What were we? Um, <laughs> that eat, um, like the potato self, and the <laughs> the true you. Oh, so you asked me if there was like a part of me that like knew I needed to stop. And um, honestly, like I don't know that that part of me that knew I needed to stop. I don't know that that even came to the forefront until like years later, honestly, because I struggled with, you know, even though I, I, I had what I felt was sort of a spontaneous recovery without fully recovering. And I'll explain why. So I went away to college and it was a new environment. I was making friends. I was happier and I got healthier and I started eating more and like I still had some of the behaviors but I was getting healthier oh I love that and so that really speaks to what you were asking me about about like the social aspect and like the environment Mm -hmm. it can either be detrimental and sort of the like this is triggering me to use or in my case it can be so healing that it kind of like instantly shifted mm-hmm. the eating disorder for me. Yeah, I definitely get that. Because I got out of the environment I was in that bred the eating disorder. Yeah, for sure. Okay, well, thanks for sharing. That was really cool. Yeah. Um, with addictions, um, I consider myself to, like, I get, you know, into things that aren't necessarily good for me. Like, in college, I was, like, super into Adderall. Like, even now, if you, like, have some, I'll be, I'll be tempted. Mm -hmm. Um, but I don't think I'm someone who will have a problem with those things. Like, I always, like, notice something and like pick myself out of it Mm -hmm. and um that got me wondering if some people are just more prone to addictions than others Mm -hmm. is this like something you're born with um or no there are people like there are people like who are hereditarily like predisposed to addiction like it's kind of the classic example, like, oh, like, your grandma had, you know, alcoholism, and then your mom got, had, not got, she didn't catch it, um, she, you know, developed alcoholism, and then, like, now you have alcoholism, 
um, there's a reason why. And there's so many factors that go into that, like, you know, like environmental, social, um, and, and biological, um, which I'm not like the expert in and can go into details in, but it's like, yes, there are people who are predisposed and then there are other people who, you know, don't easily get addicted to things. So hopefully that helped. Um, I also wanted to speak to kind of another piece of the definition of addiction. I feel like we're kind of weaving that into the episode. So this idea of like compulsion, like a compulsive behavior. So, you know, people know kind of the classic, like, you know, OCD, right? Like, um, someone is, you know, constantly washing their hands, right? That is a compulsive behavior that can also be considered addiction oh. in, in my personal, like, opinion slash learning. Um, if someone has, you know, another component of OCD is, is trichotillomania where people pull their hair out and that is a compulsive behavior. That's also an addiction. Um, and there's a huge brain component to that of like, we were talking about dopamine and also it's habitual. Like addiction is also habitual. So it's like, oh, do you habitually like bring your hand to your head and like pull out your hair like you're just used to that motor behavior right and then people who smoke they're used to this sort of behavior of like I'm smoking something and it's like there's that behavioral component that needs to be broken to break this compulsive pattern that has been wired into the brain which then also leads me back to I didn't answer the part of your question about eating disorders and like the kind of brain component of that. Let's take binge eating disorder, for example. Someone, you know, eats and then they throw up and it's like the pattern they keep engaging in. Eventually the brain learns quickly that, oh, I eat, I throw up. And it's like a habit. And then it becomes a compulsion because you eat and you're, you like, you're so used to this behavior of I'm going to go throw up that your brain literally gets into, you know, you're a brain wire expert. <laughs> it gets into a pattern. And so there's a really excellent book called Brain Over Binge that describes this like habitual compulsive cycle. But the woman who wrote it basically talked about how Every therapist wanted to tell her, oh, you, you're binging because you have some emotions you're not dealing with, right? And that might be true in some cases, but she knew deep down it wasn't that. And eventually it was uncovered by one of her other therapists that she simply created a pattern in her brain of eat, of binge, purge. And she did that enough times that it just became a habit. It was a habit. Mm -hmm. Not because she had like these emotions like she wasn't facing. Mm -hmm. And so the way to stop her binge eating disorder was to literally interrupt the, the brain pattern. Yeah, yeah. Um, what got her first into eating and binging? I mean, binging and purging. I don't remember. Uh-huh. 
Um, I'd have to revisit the book to know, but it's called Brain Over Binge, mm-hmm. and it's really, really good, not just if, like, someone is struggling with binge eating, but, like, I read it because I had a client who was um, struggling with it, and I just love the way she described the patterning in the brain of, like, simply she, like, two things were paired together enough that it became a habit. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, we can think of this in, like, super simple terms, like, you know, let's say I want to create a habit of, like, flossing my teeth after I brush my teeth. Yeah. I, you know, maybe one time, okay, I brush my teeth, and then I floss. And then next time, it's still a little conscious where I'm like, okay, I'm going to brush my teeth, and then I'm going to floss. But then eventually it becomes, I expect to floss after I brush my teeth. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you just feel like your teeth isn't fully clean. Something's missing, like you said at the beginning. Mm-hmm. It's just like, wait, there's something that else that needs to be done here. Yeah, yeah. So it's like now you're running on a program, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so I also love how obviously like eating disorders are, you know, it takes quite a bit to recover and it's not as easy. But I love the flossing example because it's like, making it easy, removing barriers to entry. And like, I heard some people, um, like they bite their nails and they're trying to not do that anymore. So they got Invisalign and then they can't do it. So there are like definitely ways to like overcome um, those bad habits. Yeah, interrupt. Yeah, yeah, interrupt. Um, And like replacing um desire like less desirable things with like better options like if you i don't know um are obsessed with soda like coca-cola which is you know like pretty fucking bad for you Mm -hmm. replacing that with like a zevia and then eventually moving into like a sparkling water with lemon so it's like um making that transition a little bit Um, easier for yourself yeah absolutely definitely and like a big part of like what I've noticed in recovery is like at first kind of getting people to do anything but that behavior that's harmful like anything but like interrupt it somehow (laughs) like jump up and down or whatever it is um just to start interrupting. Yeah, like if you binge every single night, maybe like start eating with other people so yeah. you are less likely to binge. Or it's like, okay, when you feel the urge, like can you interrupt and do something else? Like, I don't know. I just choose jump and down because <laughs> it's like an easy thing you can do in the moment. Yeah. And then you can refine what like that recovery can look like even further but I think it's like especially in like really intense addictions it's like really interrupting as much as possible to like like rewire that essentially um and another thing that came up as we were talking is like this idea of not replacing one addiction with another and That is so common with, you know, especially substances. Um, And that's why, like, in recovery, 
at least like where I where I worked specifically with addictions, it was okay, can we cut out like all substances? You know, like just because you're not addicted to marijuana like doesn't like because then that can be something that replaces like let's say they were addicted to alcohol. And that's something that can be tricky sometimes for people mm. is like replacing one addiction with another. Is that like an individual by individual basis? Like you would rather replace it with something that is less bad? I feel like, yeah, I mean, recovery is so, like anything else, it's so individualized. There's so many nuances. And like when I'm looking at someone's addiction, again, I'm looking at it from a very holistic lens and also a spiritual lens, like energetic mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Um Actually, this is super interesting. I had a client who was spiritually awakening and she was addicted to um, marijuana. And I started working with her and we started working kind of in the spiritual realm of things and like her awakening and her gifts opening up. And she didn't need to use like since she started working with me like she didn't use and didn't feel the craving to use because we were getting like there was a lot spiritually happening for her and we just went right in that uh-huh. which was super powerful to, oh that's really to watch. cool mm-hmm. and she came up with this um insight on her own she said I think that I was using to dampen my gifts, like to dampen my, you know, opening up spiritually. And like, I think this is such a cool perspective on addiction as well Is like, I heard this quote in some lecture I was at, um, by a doctor or whoever it was that addiction can be viewed as like people who use and get addicted are actually some of the most powerful people um, because, like, there's, like, this idea that maybe they're trying to block themselves from how powerful they are, which I thought was, like, you know? Oh, yeah. That, I can see how that's a thing. Um, So after she kind of, like, dived more into her spirituality, she kind of just didn't really have the urge to smoke weed because it will almost like bring her down it just like it's like I feel like it's kind of like in my case where I moved away and I just kind of started recovering like Mm -hmm. instantly and then granted it wasn't like a two-second thing it took years but it propelled that I kind of see it so similar it's like it's like anything, right? When you get to the root cause, like my home environment was not good. Yeah. And I literally left and then quote, all of a sudden I started to get better. Yeah. You know, so, mm-hmm. that reminds me of how, you know, how people talk about mushrooms these days and like, you know, uh, psychedelics and stuff and how that can be really healing and I can kind of see how, not that I struggle with addiction, but um, people after like trying it, 
they sometimes become happier and they don't want to be addicted to what they're addicted to anymore because it's like they almost see the world differently and they feel that in all feeling um and kind of like things just like shift for them yeah yeah it really can be not saying go try this yeah. if you have like bad habits it's like really different and you want to be really really intentional and careful with it but i think what you're speaking to is really important of like miracles happen all the time and we think like miracles have to be these like big things or like oh that's not possible but it's like it is possible for something to shift that quickly like it makes so much sense again going back to my experience of like taking myself out of a physical environment and then starting to get better like just like if someone lives in a moldy house and like they move they start to heal and you know have profound experiences with mushrooms and it really can be that quick of shifts and it isn't always for people but I feel like you cannot expect miracles. Yeah. 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 It's, <laughs> they happen all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm really curious what you think about um, being addicted to work or being addicted to like shopping. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So again, these are all my own views. Um, I think with work I mean again it's individual to person but maybe someone has feelings they don't even know how to get in touch with um they don't know how to cope with so they work and they work to avoid feeling whatever it is that maybe they can't even identify maybe you know, someone passed away and they don't know how to, to feel that. So they just distract. So the words that come to mind for me, when you say like work and shopping addiction is like avoidance and distraction, um, difficult to maybe identify and feel emotions. I'm not saying this is the case for, I feel like I should stop prefacing what I say. Um, Thank you. People, people get it now. <laughs> Um, you know, maybe with shopping, it's like needing that dopamine of like, oh, buy the new things. But it's like, again, it's like with, you know, if someone is overeating, it's like this sort of wanting to fill something that like, that isn't really going to fill. And that's another piece of addiction that we'll weave into the definition is like, I believe trying to find fulfillment in, in something, some behavior, but it never quite fits the bill because it's not the thing that you need. Right. And it kind of goes like up and down, up and down. Like say you got like a new dress, you feel some kind of way and that goes away. Now you have to buy another. Yeah. And obviously like shopping is wonderful, but, um, for some people it's like really detrimental. Yeah. Yeah. And again, it goes back to that idea of like, we talk about tolerance a lot when we talk about like substances, but it is that idea that like you get the dopamine hit and then it 
goes down and then you like need more of the thing to like feel more dopamine and then that goes down and then you like need more and it just keeps going. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that that's why people get so addicted to things um, so quickly sometimes is sometimes it does take the, oh, I felt good this one time. Like, let me just keep doing it again. Like, we want to, we, like, reinforce that. Yeah. You know, it's, like, it's conditioning, but it's not always the healthiest conditioning. You know, we talk about, like, Pavlov's like, dogs, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Okay. Like, there's reward. Yeah. But um, some are more meaningful than others. And with addiction is normally, like, not the super meaningful ones. Maybe. Maybe. Like, it's starting to... Like, okay, like, working hard and being committed to your career is, like, a generally considered a good quality. Mm-hmm. But um, it's when it becomes a problem when it kind of, like, brings the baseline of your life quality down. Right. Like, and it goes back to what I said about one of the definitions of addiction, like, does it affect your functioning? Is it detrimental to your, to your functioning, right? Like, um, I, I mean, alcohol is the easiest example to use, but it's like, okay, do you go out, you know, have a glass of wine and, like, that's great, you're cool, or do you go out and you have several glasses of wine and then, like, you feel like shit the next day and you can't go to work? Mm-hmm. Like, there's a difference. Yeah. Like, I can I can use something every day, but that doesn't mean I'm addicted to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I can... I mean, I don't really drink alcohol very much, but we're going with the example. I can have a glass of wine every day. That doesn't make me an alcoholic. Yeah. What... I think one of the key pieces is, is like, how is... Is that affecting my functioning? Like do I need that glass of wine or like, can I not have it one night and be fine? I'm also wondering, um, do the people you work with, um, people who go seek therapy in general, do they realize they might have a problem? So they seek help or is it usually somebody in their life feeling like concerned and they suggest they go see someone? Yeah, it's, it's all the above. So sometimes it's the person themselves that says like, hey, I have this problem. I know it's a problem. I, I want to get help. Um, sometimes it's like people, like family members, parents, if it's like someone um, under underage, you know, I've worked with teenagers, which is quite difficult, um, saying, you know, my child or this person in my life has an addiction. Um but also there are different stages of someone being ready to change and you know we learn about that in therapy school but basically it it ranges from like you know pre-contemplative which is like not even thinking about changing not gonna change to you know I'm ready to change. I'm ready to take action. And people fall 
at different stages when they come in. And so it's working with them and meeting them where they're at. Mm-hmm. So what usually makes people want to change? What a big question. <laughs> well, um, so many things. Off the top of my head, they're tired of what they're doing to themselves. They're tired of what they're doing to others by doing what they're doing. Health, you know, reasons, family reasons, like you're going to get kicked out if you don't take care of this, you know, Mm. is a real thing for people. Um, I would say like probably spirituals in there, you know? Yeah. So many reasons why people want to change. I think a big piece of helping people get to the point to where they want to change is like asking them questions about how this thing is affecting them and getting them to see, oh, this isn't like serving me. This is hurting me. Mm -hmm. And getting them to, especially, this just hit me as a projector, because we like, we see like right away And granted, yeah, it's invited because they've come to me, right? But really important to get them to see and to to think they sort of came up with the idea of, like, being ready to change. Not that I'm like, okay, you need to change. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, Is it effective? I've found this to be effective for myself. Um... Is, but has it been effective to almost, like, motivate them from a place of fear? Like, if you don't do this, this horrible thing is going to happen. No, like, I mean, I don't believe that fear is ever a motivation for anything. I will say I give my clients tough love, and I say, like, okay, like, here's a real possibility if you keep doing this. Mm-hmm. But I will never be like, like Tony Robbins, like just like instill fear in them. Like I don't believe does in that he? at all. Oh, I didn't. Know. I mean, I don't know that he does. <laughs> I'm just saying, like he's very like in someone's face, and I'm just, I'm not, I'm not, I'm never gonna motivate someone or shame them. Oh, cause like addicts are kind of like rebels, and you never want to make them feel like, hey, this is like your homework. You have to do this step by step. But kind of be like, hey, this is like what kind of works. Leave it if it doesn't resonate, but this can be helpful. And I've seen this be helpful for my other clients. Yeah. It's like very much. I work from love and I believe that in anything is like working from place of love, but I will tell them like bluntly, like you might die if you keep, if you keep doing this, you know, if it, if it, if that's the case, I'm not, that's not the case for everyone. And like, do they care? Yeah, I mean, they care. Uh-huh. It's like, again, people are at different levels, right? It's like, it might really hit someone and be like, oh, wow, okay, I, I really need to start changing. Or it might be like, oh, wow. And like, maybe they're still part of them, the addictive part of them that like, wants to keep going. And that's kind of how I was describing with like, the eating disorder where there's like these two parts. I believe that with any addiction, there's, 
the sole rational part of you and then there's like the addictive part of you that's like no I want to keep using like this is fun this is mm-hmm. you know whatever it's saying and yeah like, talking to that part I see um do you ever find people who are addicted to something or prone to addiction tend to be people who seek like very grand experiences it's really different across people like I've seen so many different types of people with addictions and they're all like different like Mm -hmm. there's you know the teenager that just wants to like have fun with their friends there's you know the guy in a marriage who isn't happy you know there's um like an older person I've worked with old people you know who are in recovery so it's just addiction they say you know addiction doesn't discriminate Mm -hmm. anyone yeah we are living like a world where we are you know constantly being like tempted with yeah you know things like social media and like they're just so accessible yeah and this was a big piece that I wanted to actually speak to coming into this podcast knowing we were going to talk about addiction is what I really believe is at a lot of the core of addiction is like the inability to sit with oneself Mm -hmm. to be with one's own mind and body and spirit and this need to do anything but that and it's like do you really feel like you're not that cool that you can't just hang out with yourself like that's how I kind of feel about it do you know what I mean I know how you mean. Um, I was never addicted to weed, but when I was really unhappy before, I would smoke weed every single night after work because thinking about like my day to day and my career and like even like next year felt like just not great. And um, I felt like I just needed to, I didn't need it, but it would be nice to like smoke weed and like feel more chill. Yeah. I, I think a lot of addiction is like avoidance. Yeah, for sure. Of like eventually, I was like, huh? You kind of smoke every day. Is that who you want to be? And I just, you know, kind of just stop because I'm like good with you know stopping behaviors. Um, but yeah, I agree. Is like, is like um, numbing mm-hmm. and distracting, and I think like one of the hardest things for people to do is to sit quietly and be with themselves. Like we always feel like we need to be doing something or engaging in something, but like, I think there's so much power in being able to just be and not do anything. Even listen to music. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I heard it's actually like very healthy to, you know, go on a walk without your phone and like not even listening to music or maybe listen to like wordless music. Mm -hmm. 
and just having that presence. Yeah, and I think that's what makes can make recovery hard is you're taking away that thing or things that you used to avoid or distract or to cope or to whatever it is and you're left with you. And that is scary for people. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I talk a lot about Um, I have a podcast episode about creating safety in your own mind and body and spirit because when you feel that safety within yourself, you don't need the external like distractions or addictions or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I get that, but so hard. Yeah, it is hard. And I'm not saying I'm perfect at it, but One of my favorite things to do now is like to literally sit or lay on my floor and just look around, stare at the ceiling, just be. Mm -hmm. Because that's where like the wisdom is. Like you get, you know, messages from your guides and it's my favorite. And I, you know, a few years ago wouldn't feel comfortable just being with myself, being in quiet And now it's one of my favorite things. I really try to limit like what I'm taking in. And I mean, I'm sure you really, again, as a projector, like we have a very finite amount of energy. And I feel like even listening to a podcast sometimes, it's extra stimuli that's coming in that I want to be very careful about how much is... Yeah, I get you. It's like... Is so crazy to think how, like, someone who lives downstairs from me, they kind of live in a different world depending on what they consume in terms of, like, media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I was, like, at this networking thing, and people, there were some people talking about the news. And I was like, oh, that, you kind of sound like you living, like, a different planet. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's like yeah. parallel realities, I yeah. feel like. So it's like really being diligent about um, like curating your world. Definitely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that includes like people you hang out with in real life and, you know, like your example of how you went to college and things just like shift it for you. So environment and obviously like your social media feed, um, like those you can like control. Yeah, and I think what you said sparked something else, which is, like, we can be addicted to people. True. There's this lovely idea of codependence, which I've worked with people on who, you know, are in relationships with an addicted person, and we can be addicted to people and like gossip and whatever, um, whatever, like kind of, I think takes us away from ourselves in a way that's not healthy, if that makes sense. But with, you know, codependence, it's when someone else kind of needs this other person they both need each other to function. 
And you see that a lot with addicted, like relationships where like one person or both are addicted to, I guess, substances in this case. The person that's addicted, basically, they're kind of the center of this other person's world because this person is like essentially taking care of them or like watching out for them and gets kind of wrapped up in their addictive world and like needs them to function. Like maybe they need to be the fixer or whatever. I'm just giving an example. It can like go so many ways. The point being we can get addicted to people too. Yeah. And I think this happens sometimes very sneakily. (laughs) Elaborate. If I'm just, um, kind of speaking from what I know and what I've seen, it's like someone can get really wrapped up into someone else's life and kind of need that to like feel good or function. Mm-hmm. Like like needing to be needed or needing like almost, I guess, I don't know if, like thriving is the right word, but like thriving off of the drama and so like their partner's life or something. Like it's very interesting how that can play out in so many ways and like you know, Oh, it's and, like the whole joke, like, you know, like a woman loves to unpack the baggage of a man in a heterosexual relationship. Yeah, that could okay. be one of the Yeah one of yeah. the sort of Codependency is interesting, I guess. I do think, um, like, in a healthy relationship where, you know, like, each individual is, like, self-sufficient to, like, live together and, like, be a unit together, I feel like there can be, there needs to be a healthy level of quote-unquote codependency. I don't know if, like... I would call it codependency per se, but like I hear what you're saying of like people. Not like you complete me, but I am better with you. Yeah, I know what you're saying there. Like it's like a healthy puzzle. Yeah, yeah. Whereas codependency is not that way. It's like unhealthy for both people. And, like, they can't be independent on them, on their own and, and likely don't have secure attachments. Mm-hmm. Just getting into, like, child, inner child stuff and all that. But Dude, inner child is huge in relationships. Do you work with um, attachment theory in your practice? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, especially when someone's coming to me with, like, relationship stuff, with parental stuff. It's a big lens that I look at things from. There's a great book that I recommend to literally every client who attachment comes up with. It's called Attached. Mm -hmm. And it's so good. It describes how your attachment style in childhood relates to your attachment style as an adult. It gave me a lot of clarity after a a long-term relationship I was in that had ended. This was like a few years ago now. But that book validated the dynamic between us 
So I highly recommend if you're wanting to like learn more about your own attachment style and then like how that's playing out. Yeah. You know, now as an adult. So. Yeah. Um, I understand the attachment theory as there's, well, like very generally speaking, there's the anxious attachment, secure and avoidant, right? I know it can be like deeper, like there's like anxious avoidant. Um, and disorganized. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's so deep. But um, the anxious attachment is like someone who... If I'm dating someone, I text a person, they don't respond for three hours. I'm like really worried. Like, oh, are they like tired of me? Are they going to leave me? Blah, blah, blah. Um, so it kind of, does it relate to abandonment issues? I mean, yeah, it can. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of just like, you know, being like very anxious. Um, if they're, they go on like a weekend trip, you almost like worry what if they don't come back or what if they like find somebody better and that usually um stems from like a childhood where what like when your parents were gone you thought you were gonna like die or something i mean it can be like you know your maybe your parent said they were gonna come back from the store in an hour and it took like two took hours. A lot longer and like yeah. I know some kids, um, when their parents are out and they don't um they come back later. Or like every time their parents head out, they worry they won't come back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that can be part of if I'm not mistaken, that can be part of anxious attachment is like yeah, that like anxiety right of oh, like are you coming back? When are you coming back? Yeah, and avoidant is when maybe the... Okay, so let's say the parent's gone and the kid is like low-key uncomfortable and when they come back, they're like, huh, didn't even know you were gone. Yeah, pretty much. It's like, well, don't care that you're back. But they care. I mean, I would I would guess... It's kind of like, probably okay... Probably unconsciously. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's more like, um, like they're back and you're like kind of glad but you don't want them to know that you were worried mm, interesting i feel like that's like almost manipulative <laughs> or i think that was me because i'm like oh you're back didn't know you were gone but yeah i think it's like the idea that like you don't you're not bothered whether they leave or come back you're just like you know <laughs> yeah um and then they're secure which it's like the best place to be, but is anyone just like naturally secure? I mean, I don't know. You know, I, I would assume that there are people that are naturally secure, depending on how they grew up. Um, probably, <laughs> it's probably not as common. Um, Maybe like, they're like mostly secure, but like 20% like anxious. Or, you know, it's not like a problem. Like they're but, very close to security. Yeah, and it's also, like, a learned thing, too. Like, that's the beauty, I think, of attachment is, like, just because maybe as a child you had traumatic experiences or whatever and you were more anxious, anxiously attached, you can learn how to be securely attached like, yeah, as an adult. Yeah, and I definitely. Think that's what's really cool about it, um, I definitely learned, you know, over my adulthood, like, how to be securely attached and 
I'm confident in saying that like I think I'm pretty securely attached in my relationships. Um, I'm I kind of describe secure attachment as like um, I'm I'm good if you're here and I'm also good if you're not here and mm -hmm. like I'm good like because I know if you're not here you'll come back and I know that if you're here you're not gonna leave kind of thing if that makes sense it's like you are secure and like okay I'm I'm good knowing that like I know you're gonna be around and okay. I don't need to grasp onto anything in either direction yeah, yeah, that's a very healthy place to be. Mm -hmm. I think I am mostly secure. I think. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> well, this book is great and kind of valuable. Yeah, I really want to read it at some point. Yeah. Okay, well, this conversation has been really fun. Yeah. Um, thanks for sharing your expertise and just, like, great stories. So mm -hmm. tell everyone um, where they can find you, work with you, connect with you. Yeah, um, so I have a podcast. It's called Sessions with Sid, and Sandy's been on it. So you can find me there. It's all about mental health, spirituality, holistic health, all the like juicy topics, and you can find me there. Um, you can find me at uh, on Instagram at sid.tafiri, which I think you'll put I'll in the show notes. I'll link it. Uh-huh. And I offer one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, so if you, you know, if I call to you as a, as a coach, as a therapist, then you can DM me. We can set up a free call and, you know, see if we're a good fit. But, um, you know, if you're struggling with addiction, mental health, spirituality, if you're spiritually awakening, I help people along their spiritual awakening and it'll open up their intuitive gifts so would love to chat with you if that calls to you awesome thank you for coming um to the podcast and yeah, thank you for talking to you soon yeah so fun all right friends hope you enjoyed that and maybe even learn a thing or two remember to check out the show notes to connect with sydney check out her podcast if you haven't already, subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And leave a 5-star rating and review. You have no idea how much podcasters appreciate that. It will take like 15 seconds. Promise. And without further ado, I will let you enjoy the rest of your day. We will be back next week with a new episode. Bye.